0: if i was brought in to 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 run this effort at tesla tomorrow the the most important thing that i would be doing would not be restoring the radar or or finding a um finding a lidar startup to crown as the winner by by putting them on every tesla i would be moving the cameras on the car and putting them in a different place
1: Hello and welcome to the Atomicast. I'm Kirsten Gorosek, transportation editor
2: with TechCrunch. And I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I am the communications director at Partners for Automated Vehicle Education and the author of Ludicrous: the unvarnished story of Tesla Motors. And unfortunately, Alex Roy is not here, at least not yet. Uh, we do, however, have a third voice that should be familiar to longtime listeners here, uh, Tarany Duncan. Uh, has decided to stop by, uh, but but not alone. But 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 first, tyranny welcome back to the Autonomy It's it's great to see you. It's great to to talk to you again. Hi, thanks. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. It's good to see you all too. And now, uh, <laughs> you brought your boss to to chat with us today. I did. Uh, why don't why don't you introduce him to us?
3: So Jason Devitt uh, has a, a company called Compound I, where I currently work as director of product. Jason is the CEO and co-founder of Compound Eye, uh, a company that has been researching ways to help machines see the world in 3D for the last seven or so years.
2: Yeah. Well, Jason, welcome to the Atonicast.
0: Well, thank you very much, Ed and Kirsten, and thank you for the intro, Tarany. Long-time listener, first-time caller. (laughs) Great to be here.
2: Yeah, it's it's great to have you. Um, I, I just, and Kirsten, I'll let you kick off the, the serious questions here, but uh I just wanted to say I, I was personally super excited when um I saw Terny, who was kind of more in uh uh micromobility and and other stuff that I was sort of more uh uh tangentially involved with kind of get into a, a company in the in the more in the automated driving space. Um very very cool uh and uh I'm I think compound eye is uh doing some really interesting stuff. So so Kirsten, you've got the serious questions. Why don't why don't we get those started?
1: Oh yes, I'm so very serious. Well, originally <laughs> I was just going to make a comment about how Alex, ironically, is like a, a victim of traffic congestion, apparently. So, which is why he's not here today. Yes, um, and hopefully he joins us soon. <laughs> uh, but Jason, I I think it'd be worthwhile for the audience to hear, you know, basically what your company is doing, but specifically how it's maybe different than. Other um, startups kind of going after this general realm. I'm sure that there is some specific, maybe technological differences, or maybe business model differences.
0: Oh, both. I think it's fair to say. So, broadly speaking, Compound Eye is working on the problem of sensing and perception for autonomous vehicles and other robots. And what we figured out is how to build a a an accurate three D representation of the world around a moving vehicle uh, in 3D, classifying everything that we see as we go along. Do that in real time and do that using only cameras. Uh, we're building what we call a full perception system for robots based on cameras and the idea is that it would be a fully redundant alternative perception alternative to um, a stack based on LIDAR or, or radar, for example. Or in certain circumstances, Uh, For some categories of robots and perhaps for some categories of automated driving systems, and this is where it gets controversial, uh, we think it's all you need. So how do we differ from other folks in the space? Um, Well, there's so many. Mm. There's so many. And there's so many uh, what I think of as as, uh, faith-based claims about what the right way to do all of this is and, and so many different religious camps. But focusing on the folks, uh, looking at the folks in the computer vision side, what makes us different, we think, is that we treat cameras, specifically pairs of cameras or three or more cameras with overlapping fields of view, as natively 3D sensors. So we do depth measurement first, and we do all other perception tasks either jointly with depth measurement or subsequent to depth measurement. Um, so that's a very important technical difference because, for example, Mobileye, which is a company that I have huge admiration for, uh, uh, it, it divides that task completely in two, and their their legacy stack is all about analyzing images in 2D and classifying everything in the scene, and then they have this um, more recent kind of bolt-on solution uh, for doing 3D, for getting additional depth information from cameras, um, and then. Uh, your your favorite uh, company Tesla uh, has a wholly monocular approach to computer vision. Uh, so they have 360 cameras or a 360 camera view of the world, but those cameras do not, for the most part, have an overlapping field of view, and um, and they try and do everything. Um, they try and infer everything from just a single monocular view of the world. So those are those are quite different. I don't want to say that we compete with Tesla. I mean, obviously we don't compete with Tesla because we're not selling cars. Uh, but it's it's actually quite challenging to to find other examples of pure play computer vision uh, companies. Um, rather, uh, you know, throw throw a rock and you hit a lidar startup. <laughs> but you're not going to. Uh, th- there aren't a lot of co- a lot. There aren't a lot of peers for us to talk closely about. If you have anyone else that you'd like to know how we compare it to, I'm happy to say so.
1: So then, you could theoretically become a supplier to, say, Tesla.
0: Theoretically, theoretically, uh, we are. uh, So our customers uh, would be in the automotive space would be OEMs and tier ones. I should say, uh, as you as you know, and as your listeners will know, if you're looking for us, we've been very quiet. We've never put out a press release. Uh, So because we've been in RD mode for a long time. Uh, we do have customers in the broad robotics market. We have research and defense contracts with the uh, uh, U.S. Army, uh, which we can talk about a little bit. Uh, obviously, some confidentiality concerns there as well. In the automotive market, our customers will be OEMs and Tier 1s. And just to clarify where we are right now, we have, uh, uh, we have a dev kit, an SDK, uh, that is going to be coming out in Q2. I think the first production run of that is fully allocated to to OEMs and Tier ones who who want to look uh, who want to want to kick the tires on what we've been developing. Uh, so from that, you could judge we do not yet have OEM and Tier one customers, and we're uh, still away from a, a series production contract. But yes, that's our business model is to sell to them.
1: Got it. Um, and then one more question, then Ed, you can take over. You you mentioned in your intro, you know, sort of the the controversial topic of a camera-only approach, although this isn't the same as other approaches. So in the debate, the grand debate that keeps on seeming to happen, which is um, when it comes to automated driving right now, the agreement for the most part among, let's say, automakers and um, autonomous vehicle developers is that it's radar lidar and cameras right so what is what do you think is being missed in that debate and, and and why why has it become such a controversy is it just because elon has taken this one specific approach with the camera and then that there's a lot being lost in that conversation or is it something else
0: well, i think there are legitimate uh, there's always a legitimate debate and can be vigorous and even passionate debate when nobody actually knows what the answer is There's a long tradition of this in science, right? When we have uh, when there are unknown unknowns, when you I I don't know if you follow follow physics, but like if you if you if you look at people who are arguing about dark matter and whether it's modified Newtonian dynamics or or a string or uh uh, or 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 some some undiscovered particle as yet, uh, you'll get people hurling personal insults at each other because nobody knows what the right answer is, and nobody can definitively say. I would say even now. Um, no one can definitively say here is the set of sensors that are necessary and sufficient for automated driving and fully automated driving. So that's that's the reason why there's so much controversy because no one no one can say, and therefore, and all of us therefore are making claims um, uh, that are not yet grounded in, in having fully delivered a solution. Now, I will take issue with one thing that you, you said, which was that the consensus among automakers is that it's radar, camera, and and lidar. Uh, I would say there's a consensus. There uh, for those who are actively trying to offer a fully automated driving system today, an autonomous vehicle, whatever, um, whatever standard you want to apply to that, uh, the fall asleep in the back of the car standard, I'm, I, I, I agree with the, the Roy Purishi test. The Roy uh, Razor. Yeah, Roy's, Roy's <laughs>
2: Razor, yeah. Roy's yeah. Razor.
0: Yeah. The, that, so there's that, that broad consensus for the fully auto- automated vehicle. But it's not like that at all in the world of ADAS. Where if we're talking about, um, if we're, which is the world that we broadly are dealing with, uh, uh, if you, I think 50% of, according to consumer reports, 50% of new cars in America this year are technically L2. Uh, they either have, meaning they have traffic aware, cruise control, and lane keep assistance available on the base model or as an option. Um, and the overwhelming majority of those cases, it's camera only, or it's camera plus radar, and it's zero including lidar to date, right? So there's, a, I'd say, there's a broad consensus that that uh, you can build a really compelling L2 system with cameras, and there's a consensus that an L4 system, which does not yet exist, will will need everything that we can possibly throw at it, and other than that, everything is is still up for debate.
2: So. Um- that, it's a I, I you know, I think like so many misperceptions and and misunderstandings about driving automation generally come out of just people not defining these things well enough, you know, trying to treat like and 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 I think you know it, like my my beef with Elon Musk influence in a lot of this is that he flattens the debate, right that he he gets rid of that nuance of like, okay, if we're talking about this thing, you know we need to think about it this way if we're talking about this it, and instead it becomes. Camera or lidar, right? Which like even flattens the issues around, you know, sensor diversity and things like that, which we can maybe get into. But, um, but I wanted to to kind of just
0: add. To- can I? Can I? Can I just say that? And I come. I I, <laughs> I do not come to praise Elon. I come to bury him. Right. I, I do not. I I I I do. I I think there's a. It could be said that Roy's razor flattens the argument as well, because if you're going to say. Uh, divide the world of cars into they're either autonomous or they're not autonomous, then there is this enormous, I mean, for the overwhelming majority of consumers for the foreseeable future, what they have to choose between is different ADAS systems, Um, cars with different uh, different capabilities. And there is already, uh, it's already extremely confusing, and there is already a significant variation in terms of the performance and the safety of those systems and we really do need some more nuanced way of of describing those systems and their capabilities so that consumers know what they're getting and so that consumers uh, I, I know i, I know you're your great friends uh, fans of uh, lisa Dixon's work so so the consumers can calibrate their trust right yep right so and 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 if we if we do narrowly if we do turn it into an argument over whether something is or is not autonomous, then we're missing all of that important piece of the debate as well.
2: Yeah, no, totally. Um, and b- believe me when I say I'm on a lot of calls all the time about <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah. how complex yeah. and and seemingly bottomless sometimes uh, uh, these issues are. So, but I want I want to I want to have a couple questions um, just on the the technology that that you're all sure. working with. Uh, I just want to dig. Um, a little, a little deeper into that. So, so first up um, you mentioned sort of multiple cameras with overlapping fields of view. You talked about monocular approaches as being different. Um, I'd love to just kind of dig into, to that piece first and um, just, uh, you know, what, what really fundamentally distinguishes those that, you know, your approach and, and, and let's, Look at the monocular approach specifically as the the kind of counterpoint, yeah. and and sort of what are the rationales for for one over the other.
3: I'd like to introduce two terms for for listeners right now, which is just parallax, which is Jason can get into that, and semantic cues. Right. So we use both, and Jason will explain why.
0: Thanks, Terany. So so broadly speaking, there are two ways to understand the world in three D using cameras or eyes, if you will. Um, One is parallax-based. So parallax is the apparent movement in the scene when you look at an object or a scene from two different perspectives at the same time. So this is something we can all do if you just open your left eye, close your right eye, and vice versa. You'll see in the scene in front of you that things that are nearby, things that are close to you, appear to jump back and forth between your left and right eye, and things that are far away um, remain stationary. And this is a quantity. This parallax is something that you can directly measure in images. And by triangulation, you can therefore measure the distance to uh, any object in the scene. Um, <clears throat> so, this is by far the primary way that humans and most other animals understand the world in 3D, in our case with two eyes, so binocular vision. Um, it's also, I actually became interested in this through a slightly different perspective, which is uh, photogrammetry. So, uh, photogrammetry, uh, I'm sure many listeners will know, is a, is a general technique for reconstructing a scene in 3D from images, typically multiple images, up to hundreds of images, that can return astonishingly precise results and is the standard technique. It's, it's a standard technique it's used in surveying and construction and agriculture in order to, to take measurements of the world in 3D. Maybe you fly a drone over your site. Um, I... I took a course in photogrammetry many years ago that that uh, that I really, really enjoyed, and it was uh, run by a, a, an organization in San Francisco called the Cultural Heritage Institute, and I was working alongside people who were museum conservators and archaeologists who were learning how to use this technique to create 3D representations that were so accurate that their goal was that they could... Uh, give them to a student or a researcher on the other side of the world, who could then write a paper, a publication-worthy paper, based on the reconstruction without ever having to have access to the original artifact. So that's the level of accuracy and precision that we're talking about. Um, so that's all possible based on geometric principles, based on this concept of parallax. And the minimum viable way to do that is with two cameras with an overlapping field of view, which some people will will know as stereo. The um, the other wholly different way <laughs> that you can you could uh, figure out depth from an image is by using what Tarni referred to as semantic cues. And what this means is, broadly speaking, it means reasoning about the image. It means recognizing that um, things that are small are probably far away and things that are big are probably close. It's looking at, uh, it's knowing that the, the curb on either side of the road, that those lines are parallel, but they appear to recede with distance because of linear perspective. Um, there, are, there are, in fact, a grab bag or dozen cues like this that roll up under, kind of broadly speaking, semantic cues. And uh, we can train a neural network to reason, or shall we say, maybe even that's a controversial term. We can, we can train a neural network to make um, estimates about the depth of every object in the scene using these kind of techniques. But it's wholly separate to and distinct from the parallax cues that I mentioned. And the big reason that people have gotten so the weird thing that's happened in the automotive industry is that possibly because of just the general popularity of deep learning over the last four or five years, almost everybody is doing exclusively the lasher. these using these semantic cues. And these semantic cues, while very valuable and can make a really, really important contribution to depth measurement, are never going to be accurate enough for what we think is a safety critical application. And this is this is what separates us and a handful of our competitors from the mainstream of folks who've been using computer vision techniques in order to do
2: and and this is what the LIDAR the the LIDAR folks kind of say, you know, when when you do have that kind of flattened like camera versus LiDAR is is right, is that yes, you can you can make inferences about depth depth with with uh with a monocular camera specifically because again that like that detail gets left out right uh where whereas so so it's it's you're making estimates versus you're actually measuring with with lidar and and sort of you're making a similar argument here too right which is that which which is that you don't necessarily need lidar to 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 take that step right from inference to actual measurement you can do it with cameras but they have to be set up with overlapping field of views
0: yeah they have to be just so <laughs> They have to be just so, right? And so um, if, if, uh, if, uh, if I was brought in to, to, to run this effort at Tesla tomorrow, the, the most important thing that I would be doing would not be restoring the radar or, or finding, a, um, finding a LiDAR startup to crown as the winner by, by putting them on every Tesla. I would be moving the cameras on the car and putting them in a different place. Uh, in order to get the benefit of this information that they simply do not have access to at the moment. It's interesting. Why do they not have that? It's 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 uh, As you know, one of the, the great things that plagues Tesla is that they made a bet in 2015 that they had all of the hardware necessary to build a fully automated system. And they have stuck with that bet. And they've promised everyone who bought a car from 2016 on, I think, that they had that hardware. Um, and the reason that they didn't invest in Multiview, as it's called, more generally, multi-view geometry techniques. Back then, was because there was no solution, there was no technology that was really credible that could actually solve the problem that we've solved in real time on a vehicle. And I know this because I talked to the then head of Autopilot at Tesla about this at around that time. And I, that's that's what uh, that's what they told me. Go ahead, Terney.
3: I read something pretty interesting. It was in one of those histories of autonomy or history of autonomy books. Um, I forget which one. It's like one of the three. And they said that David Hall in the initial DARPA challenge said something along the lines of, yeah, I would have used cameras instead of LiDAR, but I didn't have 10 years to develop the software for it. But we did.
0: Yes, exactly. No, No, that was more than 15 years ago. And yeah. in fact, if you read the paper for Project Stanley, one of our investors, uh, Spence Roban and Koslow, was, uh, was uh, the, um, the head of the vehicle team for Project Stanley that won the DARPA challenge. And uh, they, they tried to get multi-geometry stereo depth estimation to work, and they couldn't get it to work. So therefore, they used LiDAR. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, this is all with the benefit of hindsight. If you were starting over with a clean piece of paper as we are now, as our customers are starting, then we think this is the obvious way to go.
2: So I have one more uh, sort of inside the technology question, and I'll, I'll sure. hand it back to Kirsten. Um, and that is, you, you know, you mentioned um, one of the the key distinguishing features of your approach is that you're doing depth uh, measurement uh, natively uh, and uh, or, or sort of primarily, right? And then um, rather than sort of having that be something you're sort of grafting on to, to sort right. of uh, the the other things that machine uh, you know, computer vision are, are doing for you um, in your system. Why does that matter, basically?
0: Oh, oh that's a great question. So um, uh, it turns out, so let's take two simple examples. So you've got depth measurement, and you have semantic segmentation, which for the benefit of the listeners who don't know, just means assigning a class label to every pixel in the image. Um, and and most people consider those as two separate tasks. But it turns out that if you train a neural network to do both simultaneously, you get better, more accurate results on both. And the intuition behind this is that um, uh, a depth map, if you've ever seen a depth map, which is just like a colorized representation of, of the view, is itself a kind of segmentation of the scene. It separates foreground from background. If you've ever gone into an unfamiliar location and you're just surrounded by a bunch of confusing objects, like a junk store or whatever, you might find yourself doing this, which this, typically, and what I'm doing is tipping my head from side to side. And, and this is a way that, that people get additional parallax information. And it's it's because it literally helps you to understand the scene better, to, to have that richer depth information about the scene that you're looking at. Conversely, um, this goes right back to how Tereny described we're using semantic cues. The semantic map of the scene helps us get more accurate depth results, because it can tell us that's actually a car, that's a person. And therefore, uh, we can refine. Our, uh, our, our depth measurement accordingly. And Now, you don't have to take my word for this because actually there's quite a few published papers on this point as well. And the, like the best paper at CVPR a couple of years ago was all about this, that if you do these tasks at the same time in a joint optimization, you get more accurate results on both.
3: Well, and their failure cases are complementary too. Hmm.
0: Uh, that's yeah, that's right. Well, yeah. So the uh, it's it's funny. This kind of this this actually what we're talking about. This kind of parallax versus semantic approach is a form of sensor fusion. It's just all within the domain of comu- computer vision because these are two very distinct approaches. And um, and yeah, the the failure cases are actually complementary uh, with uh, with very left, very little left behind
3: because we see the geometry of the scene, we're less likely to hallucinate.
0: <laughs> That's right. I, I, sorry, let's give you some really concrete. Yeah, let's give that you some. That should be really tagline. Conc- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. Oh, yeah. I'm, go- I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go with less likely to hallucinate, tyranny, respectfully. Okay. All All right. Right.
3: <laughs> <laughs> but I give you. I'll we give can you conc- tell when we're hallucinating.
0: I'll t- no, I'll tell you. I'll give you a really, really concrete example that comes up a lot. Um, if you, Let's say there's a picture of a pedestrian, like an advertisement on the back of the van in front of you, right? It's a U haul van. This is like a basic 2D system is going to not be able to distinguish that image from an actual pedestrian and might might give you a false braking alert, right? But ours never will because we know that's flat. So therefore, it's not a person. And and, and perhaps an even more common example is shadows. So uh, uh, many of the monocular systems on the market today uh, have a high incident of phantom braking that's associated with shadows in the road. So how do you tell a tree branch from the shadow of a tree branch? Well, uh, a parallax-based approach gives you the actual geometry without without needing to recognize the branch at all. And therefore, we can make this really important kind of distinction between those two cases. So those are are some concrete examples of where this becomes important. Yeah. Perhaps the most important application that we see at the moment is is just yet dealing with the problem of completely, think of the random things that can show up in the middle of the highway. Right. So it's 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 what it's like what can fall off the back of the truck.
1: I recently encountered a washing machine in a left (laughs) lane of a freeway. So there you go. (laughs) Yeah. A wetsuit. A wetsuit. I think
3: Jason saw recently, too.
0: A wetsuit. A friend of mine recently encountered a baby stroller, fortunately, without baby or (laughs) parent, but a baby stroller in the left lane of the highway in his Model 3, which did not react. And but. But that's uh, but this is this is understandable because like the things that could fall out of a vehicle particularly given the incredibly poor way in which most people secure their loads in the US is is pretty much anything that ever was or or is or ever will be <laughs> and you can't train a neural network to recognize anything in the world from any conceivable angle and also to have a prior on what size it is so that you know you can figure out it's a real object whereas um, with a parallax-based approach like ours, you look at this and you say, oh, that's there's a thing sticking up out of the road. I don't know what it is. I don't need to know what it is. I just know I need to break.
1: So I'm wondering, you mentioned that you're working with the U.S. Army, but um, I don't know if they were the first um, entity that you worked with or not. And I'm curious about what those first conversations were like, because um, while you're correct that in, in the world of ADAS, it is not established that, that radar, LIDAR camera is the correct approach, but there seems to be this groupthink about what is best. And from my perspective, it seems like it might be difficult to break into that with an entirely new approach. Right. Um, so what were those first conversations like, and who were the first Organizations or companies, um, or maybe it was the U.S. Army, army to see and un- fully understand what was possible, and then say yes, compound I. I'm let's, let's try
0: this out. Oh, so it's not as difficult as you might think, because there are plenty of folks out there who cannot use lidar or radar for one reason or another. Um, I can't go into the details of some of our kind of early robotics customers. Nor can I say too much about what we're doing for the U.S. Army, but I, who are not our first um, uh, customer. But what, I, what I, I think because this is public information, uh, the, the Army is incredibly hesitant to use LiDAR or radar on a ground vehicle because the other guy can see you coming. It's just really easy to detect. LiDAR can light you up like a Christmas tree. In infrared, but if it's 900 nanometer LiDAR, uh You can see that with uh the selfie camera on a smartphone right a little bit harder to detect 1550, and fifty but not for our near peer adversaries to use the polite euphemism so so the question is not for them is not how do we uh, whether they should use cameras for this but how and so we were we were the how um and, and that's, a real, that's, that's, that's just fascinating work for us because, um, you know, we talk about limitations of, of these different sensing modalities. Clearly, the Army needs to be able to dispatch a vehicle anywhere, and not just on a road, um, under any conditions and any environmental conditions and any time of day or night, and, uh, and, and ideally be able to do that with, uh, with just passive sensors. Uh, so, so that's a, yeah, go ahead. These Taryn. are
3: people who have been tracking developments and cameras and compute for a long time now anticipating this moment.
0: So, uh, so that's an example. And then, and then just to, just to bring it back down to kind of pragmatic reality, when we talk to, when we talk to OEMs uh, and tier ones, uh, we're not making the case. It's, it's not about, oh, you should do this instead of LiDAR. Because as I said at the beginning, we're perfectly happy to be a redundant solution alongside LiDAR. Uh, it's, it's cost it's it's very much it's very much about cost the single the single most common objection that we get from OEMs is that they don't want to add a second camera forward facing because that's going to cost them 25 bucks right so so i hear my my esteemed colleagues in the lidar industry Boasting about getting uh their systems down to five hundred dollars per unit at some time in the next eight to ten years, and th- like th- th- those there are deals getting done in the luxury car market um but i'm 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 just they're they're typically not in the room in the conversations that we're having for folks on the ADAS side because of the cost issue radar yes radars radar yes
3: yeah and we also don't necessarily make the hardware ourselves, we have like a reference design that these folks would use. Um, And something that we have heard from OEMs and Tier 1s that they're excited about is we have a very configurable baseline. So we can mount uh, vertically, horizontally, or diagonally. So what that means is they can keep the camera that they've had, uh, that they've been doing you know, level 2 lane keep assist with. And they have all this training data they've used to, to train that system to recognize lane lines. They can just add a second camera. And use our system with that. So that's pretty cool.
0: So we're so we're going in saying use an auxiliary camera, and you can get the dense depth information that you need to do in order to, for example, avoid um, washing machines on the road.
1: <laughs> um, now, citing the fact that every vehicle is different, and and there isn't like a precise placement, but you earlier said, you know, that if I were a Tesla starting tomorrow and, you know, I'd be advising them, the first thing I'd be looking at is moving cameras. And so where on a general sedan. I mean, where, where are we talking about it? Uh, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking two forward facing cameras, one on each side kind of near where the headlights would be, but maybe that's just me making general assumptions about where they might be placed. Um, Keeping that in mind, that all vehicles are a little bit different. Um, where, in general, do these cameras go?
0: Sure. So uh, we can say uh, simply that I'd agree with most people that whether you want one cameras or two, the Tesla camera should be on the A pillars and not on the B pillars, uh, on the sides, um, on the rear view. Uh, there's, a, I think, there's an open open question about to what extent you need three sixty Dense depth information, um, and, and that's that's more not clearly clearly the forward-facing direction is the most important. We could support 360. It is interesting that there are a lot of folks who are thinking about right, like can we deal with less uh, lower accuracy um, in in other directions? So conceivably, you could have a monocular view uh, behind and to the sides, and just uh, have a dense 3D information on the forward-facing view. Not my preference, but that's uh, that's an option. Uh, so, but let's focus on the forward-facing view because to, to answer your question, because even that there's quite a lot of variety. Um, the uh, the the what gives you the widest possible baseline, and therefore all else being equal, um, the longest range is to put them on the wing mirrors. Uh, much much higher interest in putting the cameras inside the. Uh, Vehicle behind the windshield for reasons mm-hmm. I'll come back to. Some considerable interest in putting a camera in the grill or next to the headlights uh, because then you're you don't you're not occluded by the hood. Right. Um, behind the windshield is the most compelling solution for most for much, for most automakers because it's the easiest integration task for them. Um, you know if they want to just support these on a premium model or a higher trim level uh it's uh and it also allows you to use the windshield wipers in order to protect the sensors now cameras and lidar and radar all need sensor cleaning mechanisms right uh but uh but the putting putting the cameras or other sensors behind the windshield if possible is the is the most efficient solution in terms of uh dealing with um uh sensor cleaning and my one of the lidar companies that i most admire um sept on is um, like they, they've they've secured a big deal we don't know how big with with, with GM and uh, I don't know all of the details of that deal uh, but like why have why have they why have they gotten when others have failed it's it's not because they're 1500 nanometer lidar or because they're FMCW or because they you know have a better performance than others in terms of reflectivity it's because they figured out how to get a 900 nanometer lidar to work behind a windshield so so these are these are the kind of considerations and trade-offs uh that, that you have to balance. It's not simply what gives you the best possible performance?
3: Yeah, it's almost like they took customer constraints into consideration. <laughs> they were designing their hardware.
0: <laughs> yes.
2: Yeah. Well, and and I mean, right? They're they're two again two very different things. Uh, on the one hand, you know, taking cars as they kind of exist now with their existing business model and manufacturing approach and and, right. and supplier network and all this other stuff, and and sort of increasing the level of of automation or assistance that that's available to them uh, or in them um, versus you know saying like hey we're you know we have a self driving stack we're going to build a vehicle ground up around that to sort of like you know th- those end up being very very different things and again I think mm-hmm. yeah like a lot of people's confusion about all kinds of aspects of this trace back to not really making that distinction as as clear I, as I it is right? I completely agree
0: I completely agree those those are two very very distinct paths and. Um, it's possible that both will succeed uh if maybe the one or, one or both are impossible but they are profoundly different and all of the the economics the technical considerations the design considerations you are are completely different personally i think and i don't i don't I haven't heard this talked about before but i i my gut and i'm not betting my company on this but this is my, my this is how i think the future's going to play out i actually do believe that um Today's ADAS can can evolve towards full autonomy. I I do agree with Amnon Shoshua that, uh, that an autonomous vehicle is essentially an ADAS with a very very high uh, mean time between failure. But and this is I think the the original thought here is that the automakers can keep push can can keep advancing the technology here. And if they don't actually succeed in getting to an, an autonomous vehicle, a fully autonomous vehicle, it doesn't matter because it's self financing. Because pe- people are paying for partial automation. Uh, people are paying for these features. They like them. Uh, and they are going to get better with each make and model year. And they may never get to the point where they do not require human supervision. Uh, but they don't have to, so long as they keep delighting consumers and, and hopefully not harming them. Um, meanwhile the autonomous vehicle, the pure play autonomous vehicle, build a stack from scratch moonshot approach is an all or nothing approach where there's no business there until you actually can actually deploy a vehicle in an ODD large enough at a price lower than an Uber (laughs) to a large enough audience that you can get to cash flow break even. And in the meantime, you're entirely relying on, on venture capital. And so those folks can, those folks have to, solve autonomy and the automakers maybe necessarily don't need to apart from tesla because they promised everyone
2: <laughs> <laughs> and and took people's money yeah yeah um we haven't gotten into yet so so say you know i'm an automaker um i've got a whatever industry standard maybe it's mobile eye based whatever level two system um uh, on the vehicle could be any of them um you know what what's the What is the the impact from a user perspective? Like, what are users going to notice about the difference of experience if they were to take your system and and sort of replace the the monocular called a monocular you know camera based L two system that that exists today? Uh, Is are we talking you know similar capabilities but maybe like more reliable? Is it are we talking about actually taking significant steps in the level of automation or the operating design domain or where where, where does the user see those benefits?
0: So I I think it depends on the the degree of uh, of how much of our stack you take and to uh, uh, how much you do on uh, the implementation and what you do beyond it but l- let me say that let me make it simple by saying what difference does it make to have dense depth in terms of from what from any sensor to uh, to the performance of the kind of systems that you're talking about and and you ju- you just turn to like halfway through the owner's manual and you you find this litany of limitations of your L2 system, right? That it's something like it it, it it won't recognize certain kinds of objects. It won't it won't stop for things in the middle of the road. It won't stop for a vehicle that's abutting into the lane. It won't stop for, it, it won't, it might automatically break on a hill beca- or approaching a hill because it, it falsely detects the road surface itself as an obstacle. Or it might lose contact with the vehicle in front uh as it goes up and down a hill or around a steep curve in the case of cruise control all of that all of those kind of that familiar familiar if you're like me and you read the owner's manual uh all of that the the kind of litany of problems or limitations of existing l2 systems in our view come back to um not actually having a full 3d representation of the world right um some of it also attributable to a map but by the way if you have good 3d data you can you can build a very you can Build a continually updated, um, quite high definition map as well. In fact, fully high definition map, depending on your category of that. That's a that's a that's 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 not a surprise because people uh, other people have successfully demonstrated that with cameras.
3: And to do these things, uh, we're we're really configurable too, right? Like um, Kirsten, you're asking about the baseline and where we would set up our cameras. It depends so much, not just on the baseline, but also on the resolution of the camera, uh, the amount of compute customers want to use. Um, all of that it's kind of all of that works together
0: So you know we, we could we could say concretely um, let's suppose that your your LT system today is using uh, a low-end radar in order to track the car in front the problem is that on a on a winding road the the radar can't see lane lines the radar has no in, has no um, understanding of the structure of the road and so from the radar's perspective this car is indistinguishable from one that's just cutting in and out in front of you right? And so that's why it gets confused on a winding road. Or if you're approaching a steep curve um, and you uh, have one solution to that, as with Super Cruise, is to have a pre-built map. But even if you don't have a pre-built map, if, you have a, if you're approaching a steep curve in the road, if you know the geometry of the road ahead, you can properly slow down to engage in the curve and speed up on the way out of it. But in 2D, that can be entirely confusing or, or un-understandable. Perhaps the single biggest and most mundane, um, and we've mentioned it before, app uh, benefit, though, is uh, is not running into, uh, is is, prop- is properly dealing with debris in the road. Uh, if you look at the folks who are deploying LiDAR today on luxury vehicles for ADAS, um, they're, we think they fall into two camps. One are those who are trying to solve that specific problem. And I was talking to someone at one of the OEMs recently, and I won't say who, but uh, they said lidar is for Germans, and it was it was tongue in cheek. But what they're referring to is that the the German OEMs are fixated on how do we pre- prevent a catastrophic accident on the autobahn where there's no speed limit um, from someone running into a concrete block or a tire.
3: Yeah.
0: Right. That's so. That's that's a huge huge consideration there so that's 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 that is like the reason that say the CEO of BMW has said that they are I believe that's the key reason the CEO the CEO of BMW has said that they can't do level three without lidar it's because a monocular camera system can't detect this kind of arbitrary debris in the road and so the new information we're bringing to the industry is a properly designed um, system that uses both parallax and 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 uh, and neural networks can do that
3: and the, the folks who are most similar to us in the market also agree that parallax is very powerful, but what they have failed to do is apply semantic cues. So that's where we're truly unique is that we do both.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you, because you, because there are limitations to that approach too. So go ahead.
1: Sorry. Uh, I just wanted to backtrack, uh, just so you could complete your thought. You admit you had mentioned in the ADAS camp, there, uh, two categories of LiDAR companies. And I was oh, wondering yeah. <laughs> if you could finish that thought because I want to know about the other one.
0: <laughs> oh, no, no. Yeah, yeah, sure. That's the that's the cup holder camp. We're putting, we're putting LiDAR on the vehicle because Tesla doesn't have LiDAR. And we can say to the consumer that there's LiDAR on the vehicle. That's a real thing. That's that's uh I I can't speak for all yeah. of them but I've definitely had I've definitely been told by by again one OEM yes I won't say which country this time I won't say anywhere yeah. but said we we're putting a lidar on the vehicle because for we can marketing. say to customers the Tesla does, that we have it and Tesla doesn't yeah
1: that's interesting because it's not as if uh, a lidar sensor is granted the cost is dropping but it's not gro- dropping appreciably that uh, apparently they see value in uh, they've calculated the value of that right, um, that's, right.
0: that's right but it's a, that's that's why i'm i'm kind of uh, i mean i'm joking when i say it's the cup holder argument right but you, you, it's going to go through a phase where th- this is th- these are luxury vehicles too right yeah it's a luxury vehicle where you say um where the, the the customer comes in perhaps with a wish list of features that they associated with having the primo car and um and 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 brandon wants to make Todd look like an idiot at the yacht club and he's got lidar
2: so so I, I'm curious actually because um, I think there's one other use case that I'd like to believe the industry takes seriously or like okay. some some in the industry take seriously and 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 maybe they do maybe they don't um, but uh, I'm curious your, your take on it because it also touches on another issue right if you compare yourself to lidar um uh, you know there, there's the issue of low light performance right and so spe- specifically like i think um an issue i've been trying to talk about a lot lately is just um you know, the sheer percentage of of uh, uh, pedestrian deaths that happen in low light conditions mm-hmm. and just the really uh inadequate state of aeb when it comes to pedestrians at all mm-hmm. but specifically pedestrians in low light conditions and and you know the lidar companies say you know we have a we we, we potentially have a tool to 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 deal with that. Um, right. And, uh, and of course the, the thermal as well, which, which brings an interesting point. So i I,
0: I want you okay. to, I'm glad you brought up thermal.
2: Yeah. So, so I guess I'm wondering like, is, is, you know, can you just sort of do your system with, with thermal imagers uh, instead of traditional camera imaging sensors? Uh, is that, is that in the realm of possibility or, or just kind of what's your perspective on that? As, even as an issue that the industry cares about, cause I'm curious about that.
0: Sure. With thermal. Uh, yes, we can. So, um, that's a, that's a, a key area of development for us. It's uh, really interesting, um, it's, and it's motivated. Yeah, I can't, I can't, yeah. Okay. I can't, I can't say too much about it because of a confidential customer, just dis- the relationship there, but yes, you can do this with thermal and it is compelling to do it with thermal, but you get back to, but but let's ba- step back a second because it's not like, oh, thermal is the, is the only solution here. Um, I, I do think that people under, uh, overestimate the or underestimate the performance of automotive-grade cameras in low-light conditions. But I mean, automotive-grade cameras do actually very, very well in low-light conditions. In fairness, even the automotive-grade, even the cameras on a Tesla do well in low-light conditions. And those, as you've pointed out many times, are cameras from 2015. Right? Yeah. The, the big problem that's the big problem with cameras, or the limitations of cameras specifically, and this is independent from computer vision uh the big problem with cameras specifically over the last couple of years has been um high dynamic range during the day so you know we've seen with intense lighting where perhaps we're driving directly into the sun and there's also a lot of detail that we want to pick up in the shadows and uh and so what can we do there and and here um the reality is that the uh the the image it's the image sensor folks who are carrying the load for the industry it's the folks like omnivision and on semiconductor and sony Who've all made huge strides on this, um, using different technologies, uh, you split pixel approaches, adaptive exposures across the frame, uh, just deeper the brute force approach, which you have the really deep capacitive well on your on your image sensors, and and I would say at this point that like even the sensors coming out this year exceed the capabilities of uh, of the human eye or human vision in this respect, and it's all it's all just getting better from here. Um, and, and where those two things come together is uh, like where we do have low light performance issues, you know, that uh, um, there's a little bit of speculation here, but Nutzer N- 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 has been, inv- has been uh, investigating some, uh, a series of accidents that have involved collisions with an emergency vehicle at night, right? It's not that the car didn't, I can't believe the car didn't see the emergency vehicle. I think the problem is that the lights from the emergency vehicle can blow out the sensors. I'm not sure about that. But I suspect that's the bigger issue so that, again, it's the high dynamic range because it's the intense lights of the emergency vehicle in an otherwise dark scene uh, that's causing a problem. And and again, that was a problem. I think that problem is going away. And one of the advantages that those of us who are working in computer vision have is that we get a free upgrade from the average sensor folks every year um, rather than having to solve all of these problems ourselves. So then... This 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 I believe deals with almost all uh, with all normal driving conditions. Now, if you want to see in total darkness, that's where thermal is your friend. Um and where we already have thermal cameras on available on a lot of premium vehicles where the real benefit is that they can do pedestrian detection or animal detection beyond the range of the headlights at night, maybe 500 meters or more. Um more, more cars have shipped with thermal sensors than than uh, than lidar, I believe. Yeah. So far, and so we do see that getting better and better. Uh, we we are work. Uh, we we're we're really interested in the technology that that, that Flir and others are, are producing there. And yes, our technology is compatible with those.
3: And the thing that concerns me, I think, is um, an issue that you see with these lower price point lidars is that the. Point cloud coming off of them is really sparse. And so therefore it's harder to identify objects that are further away. Yeah. Even if you're identifying the points to a centimeter of accuracy, if you don't know what they are, that doesn't really help you. Yeah. So the thing that concerns me about the LiDAR versus camera religious war <laughs> is uh, that we're so upset about what Elon's done that we're not looking at the use cases and what the technology can do in a more objective way.
0: Yeah, right. I mean, the the, the the if you look back to the Uber accident, um, that vehicle had a sixty four, then top of the line sixty four line uh, lidar scanner on it. It's just that the 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 it, it had difficulty classifying what it was looking at because of the relatively sparse point returns back. So it, so again, I, I as I said at the outset, um, our goal is to build a fully a, a full three D perception solution using cameras alone there's lots of good reasons to be made for also having radar or lidar on the car as an independent source of information um that's so so uh so we try to stay away from this kind of religious conflict but we can't avoid it because if we say we can solve the whole problem with with, with cameras we have to make the case of why we can solve the whole problem with cameras if some if our customer wants to slap a uh, a lidar on there uh g- go with God.
2: Absolutely. No, and and I think I think that is you you put your finger on the point that I think we can all uh, really agree on which is that, you know, if, a as you said at the outset, which I really appreciate, like nobody has all the answers here, right? Like we're all figuring out what really works and what doesn't. And and B, I think like yeah, like like this flattening of the debate, making it religious, making it zero sum rather than just being pragmatic about, you know what? Like th- there's a bunch of different there's a bunch of different problems to solve here. And like different, there's gonna be different approaches. And it's gonna take time to just really sort out, you know, what works best for what. And they're not all the same and and they don't all require the same approaches. So I, I really appreciate y'all coming on the show. We we are just about out of time. Um, but uh, you know, I think everything that you've shared today, it really helps I think people understand that like there is really so much more nuance to these issues and that like really the goal of this all should not be for like camera versus lidar for like one side to win that debate, but for all of us to like at some point move on past it and talk about frankly more interesting stuff which to me this this <laughs> really is so so thanks for helping Elon be part makes of this so
1: hard Elon makes it so hard to move on right but um but but I think that it does show ed um that there's this really amazing progress that's occurring after years of development that can be lost in that, you know, very black and white debate. Right. And um even people I know in the field who say who who don't want to find themselves agreeing with, let's say, Elon Musk is they do believe that with enough time and and development that cameras would eventually, you know, take the place. It just said we're so focused on that like near term, we're kind of missing companies like yourself that that you founded and have been working on for for seven seven or eight years uh, on that fact so it's to me like that's what the atonicast is all here for is it like maybe doing a deep dive and sure having the debate but having actual full context right like oh there is actually something else going on here
0: absolutely and thank you very much for uh, for having us on yeah, thanks.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um if folks want to to get in touch with you all learn more whatever wh- what's the the best place for them to do that?
0: Uh for uh for the company it's compoundi.com. Uh I'm I'm david at DEVITT at, on Twitter. Um although not active there, but I shall respond to anybody who <laughs> has questions following up from this and tyranny.
3: I'm on Twitter as well, Tarani Duncan, T-A-R-A-N-I-D-U-N-C
2: again. Awesome. Well, uh, yeah, thanks again to both of you. And uh, thanks to uh, everyone who who tuned in uh, to listen. And uh, we will see you here again uh, on another episode of the Autonicast.